Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello once more, and welcome everyone to the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. As always, I am your illustrious host, Luke Giaconetti, and today on the Earth Destruction Directive, we're going to be talking about Godzilla, Gangsters, and Goliath, a comic book miniseries from the good folks over at IDW. I hope everyone enjoyed our last episode, where we talked about Godzilla vs. Biolante, one of my favorite Godzilla films from the Hesai era. And I'd like again to welcome all the listeners now listening to us here on the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. We are going to get right into this. This is a uh, good story, and I can't wait to talk about it. We're going to take a quick break, and we are going to be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Earth Destruction Directive. Where a robot can reprogram himself to grow giant, and it's not the strangest thing in your movie. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. On this episode, we'll be taking a look at the miniseries Godzilla, Gangsters, and Goliath, which was released by IDW Comics last year. The series was written and lettered by John Lehman, with Albert Ponticello on art, Jay Photos on colors, Bobby Kernow and Chris Ryle editors, and Chris Mallory as creative consultant. Our story opens with a roughed-up man coming ashore on a tropical island. This is Sato, and he is a police detective, and he's in trouble because the island he has just landed on is Monster Island. Seems like Sato ran afoul of a powerful Yakuza boss, and this is his punishment. In flashback, we learn that Sato and his partner were trying to topple Takahashi, an extremely influential Yakuza, with his fingers in all sorts of pies, including the Tokyo Police Department. Takahashi and his men frame Sato for his partner's murder and then concoct this creative method of disposing of him. Back in the present, from their ship, Takahashi's men see Sato land on the island and give pursuit to make sure the job is finished. None of them are prepared, though, for what they find as Sato runs directly into the foot of Godzilla. Takahashi's men open fire on the King of Monsters while Sato makes a break for it. While this does little more than irritate the Godzilla, and Goji opens up with his atomic breath, sending the goons flying, but he is soon interrupted by Mothra, who screeches at Godzilla until he seems to lose interest and leaves. Sato, meanwhile, stumbles upon a small temple and finds two men inside. They are, he discovers, the guardians of the Elias, the priestesses of Mothra. Sato gets inspired and kidnaps the Elias, heading back for the mainland. Back in Tokyo, Sato is a fugitive from the law, so he has to hide out in a hotel. He threatens to kill the Elias unless they force Mothra to do what he wants. The Elias warned that the balance must be kept, but eventually acquiesce, and later that night, Takahashi's posh penthouse club is attacked and leveled by Mothra. Takahashi no doubt suspects that Sato has survived his visit to Monster Island. The attacks continue, as Mothra in turn flattens Takahashi's different illegal operations. 
While this is going on, Sato goes to visit his younger son, Jiro, to tell him about what he has done and to warn him to get out of the city. Jiro is less than impressed, but he does not betray his father's trust. Later, the Elias tells Sato that he must stop and that the balance is threatened. Sato isn't hearing it, but he does not realize that Godzilla has appeared in Tokyo Bay. And that's not his only problem. Takahashi's men have found Jiro, and even though he did not give his father up, he did have his father's calling card on him, so the Yakuza were able to find him. Takahashi and his goons rough up Sato and Jiro, and kidnap the Elias for their own evil purposes. The balance completely broken, more monsters descend upon the city. Rodan, Batra, Anguirus, Kumonga, and others all join Godzilla in raising the metropolis. Takahashi holds the city ransom, saying that he will rule the country before he's done. With few options remaining and the JSDF spread very thin, Sato and Jiro break into the G-Force uh, headquarters, where they find Sato's estranged older son, Koji, a G-Force pilot. Together, the three of them find the weapon with which they will restore the balance, Mechagodzilla. Koji warns that this older model MG will be no match for Godzilla, but Sato says that they are not going after Godzilla. They are going after Takahashi. And that is where I will stop the story. Oh man, where do I start with this one? First off, I have to say, this is substantially better than Kingdom of Monsters, the ongoing IDW series. This is a great mix of monster chaos and human drama. By the end of it, it's just wall-to-wall -wall chaos by the end of the series, with monsters running everywhere, the uh, Yakuza police uh, back and forth, gunplay in the streets. It's amazing uh, amount of uh, uh, in, uh, insanity going on by the end of this. And it doesn't lose either plot. Both the monster plot and the human plot are given uh, equal shrift, and neither one feels shorted or half-baked, and they interact with each other directly, so it really feels cohesive. Uh, it seems like um, Lehman took a lost Showa-era script with all the police and Yakuza involvement and then updated it for modern times and sensibilities. I mean, I really liked this story. The art by Alberto, excuse me, Albert Ponticello was really strong as well. Uh, the monsters really have a great mass and weight and, and presence on the page. One of the complaints that I had about Kingdom of Monsters was that you know, the monsters generally looked all right, but they never looked any different than just drawings. You know, they didn't have that really type of uh, massive presence on the page like the monsters do here. And uh, they really do. All the different monsters all look really nice uh, on Ponticello's uh, pencil. Uh, humans, they look quirky without being weird. Uh, it's kind of hard to explain. They're, the facial features are a little exaggerated. They're certainly not photorealistic. But they're not, like I said, they're not weird. They're certainly uh, uh, appealing. They almost have sort of a Mike Mignola kind of quality to them, and really that's not a bad comparison at all. I, I really like the way that uh, the art was handled for the humans as well. Overall, I thought that uh, the artwork on this series was much more appropriate for the subject matter than the kind of uh, quirky borderline on inappropriate art that we got for Kingdom of Monsters, which... Uh, really seemed to be more almost a caricature art and not really kind of storytelling art like we get here. Uh, there's also some really great just individual visuals that we get throughout this series from, uh, from Ponticello. Uh, one of them is right at the beginning when Sato runs into Godzilla's foot on Monster Island. And this scene reminded me very much 
of the security guard at the nuclear power plant in Return of Godzilla, or Godzilla 1985, where it's a similar sort of shot where we see Sato see the foot of Godzilla, and then he looks up and up and up, and there's Godzilla standing before him. So that was a really uh, cool scene, and that set the kind of visual tone for the series, I think, because it comes really early in the first issue, and I really like that. Uh, another Godzilla scene that was uh, very striking is at the end of the third issue, when the balance has been broken, we see uh, Godzilla rising up out of Tokyo Harbor. Now, the way this is handled is we get three panels that are all the width of the page, and there's real narrow uh, height-wise, but we see just a shot of the harbor, then a second panel, a shot of the harbor with a, some bubbles starting to burble up, and then the final panel is the uh, shot of the harbor with Godzilla's head and eyes and top of his snout coming out of the uh, water, and it's very uh, menacing. I really like that. Uh, at the beginning of the fourth issue, we get a flashback to Monster Island to before all this happened, and the purpose of this scene is to demonstrate that Mothra is the agent of, of balance in the realm of the Daikaiju. And so the scene is actually Titanosaurus fighting Kumunga. And, wow, I never would have thought to put the two of those together because, you know, Titanosaurus tends to get lumped in with the later monsters, you know, being from the last Showa-era film, Terror of Mechagodzilla, whereas Kumunga is kind of in the middle, you know, late Golden Age, the you know, early, later period of the Showa-era. And, and, but they're a good matchup, though, because if you think about it, I mean, if Godzilla can fight Kumunga, and he has in, in a couple of different films, then it makes perfect sense for someone like Titanosaurus to be able to do it also, because Titanosaurus is a big sauropod uh, dinosaur-like monster like Godzilla is. So just a, I, even though, like I said, I never would have put those two together, it was a great shot of the two of them tussling. And uh, the scene itself is a nice little, like, three-page uh, sequence where basically Mothra breaks up their fight and, and lays them both out. Um, Mothra looks great too. She's uh, very colorful with her wings and uh, the most colorful monster on display by far. Uh, but really, just a really impressive full-page splash of these two uh, Daikaiju fighting. And finally, I have to say this, in the last issue, we get a double-page splash of eight different monsters all ravaging the city at once. And it's just this is Godzilla comics right here. Monsters going crazy on a massive scale. You know, really it takes advantage of the medium of comic books. I'm going to come back to this point later probably. But, you know, that shot, if IDW released that as a poster, I would buy it because it's just, you know, Godzilla, Anguirus, uh, Rodan, uh, Batra just leveling this city, and it just really looks great. And that's what I like to see as a Daikaiju fan. I also want to take some time to talk about the covers. Now, in addition to Ponticello, um, there's a few other uh, cover artists doing the variant covers. Uh, this is something that IDW does a lot on uh, a lot of their different series. They'll do multiple covers for each issue. I think it's kind of a cost-effectiveness issue for them, because they are a smaller publisher, and they get more covers. They can maybe sell multiple copies, and that's fine. What this means to me is that I can pick and choose which covers I want. So I always get a, you know, I got a choice on image if I don't like the main cover. Uh, all the covers are pretty much fantastic. Some of the uh, variant cover artists include Jeff Darrow, Paul Hanley, James Stokoe, and Dan Barrington. Uh, they're all very eye-catching, and what's interesting is that they're all in a slightly different visual style as befitting having this many artists doing the different covers. 
Um, for instance, uh, the, co the cover to number two that I have, I want to say, is by James Stokoe, but I'm not 100% sure. I don't have the issues in front of me. It's almost a photorealistic cover of Godzilla and Mothra, and it looks like it could have been um, you know, taken from the, the Millennium Era God, uh, Tokyo SOS, the Millennium Era Godzilla film that had Mothra in it. Because they, they look just so, uh, like I said, photorealistic. It's just a very impressive piece of art. But overall, all the covers are, are real nice, and you, could, uh, you can't go wrong with one of the covers from uh, this series. IDW has done a good job, even on Kingdom of Monsters for the most part, of putting some really eye-grabbing covers so that if you're just scanning over the racks at your comic book shop, or you're paging through uh, previews or scrolling through the list of solicitations online, the cover will catch your eye and you'll take a look at it and say, ooh, giant monsters, you know. So kudos to them. They've, they've continued that here on Gangsters and Goliaths. There is a, a fun little callback at one point in this story. Um, as I said, when Sato comes back from Monster Island, he's got to hide out in a hotel, and he has the Elias with him. Well, Bill, this made me think of was, the Twin Fairies, as I almost always refer to them, in the hotel um, in Gator the Three-Headed Monster, which we covered, of course, in our second episode here on Earth Destruction Directive. So that made me laugh. Anytime I see the, uh, the Twin Fairies in a hotel, you know, it seems like they were always getting ferried around someplace in the uh, early days of the Showa period. So this uh, definitely fits in with that mold. Uh, in closing, I just want to say this is what a Godzilla comic should be. As I said earlier, it takes advantage of the medium. Okay, for all that, a lot of comic, modern comic uh, creators want to turn comics into film. Comics have their own strengths, and this comic is a good representation of that. You know, this storyline would be very difficult to shoot as a film, not so much because of the story itself, which is you know fairly straightforward, but the amount of monsters that you need, the amount of different locales that you need, some of the different effects. Uh, for instance, uh, when Mothra attacks Takahashi's um, uh, club, it's a penthouse. Well, and she uses her, her wings to create a gale force wind that levels just that level of the building. And that would be, I think, technically a little bit difficult to pull off and be convincing in, uh, in, in live action. But in the comic book, you can do it and you get the point across perfectly well, and we all understand what's going on. And, um, you know, we, we appreciate that, and it, and it serves the story perfectly. So this really takes advantage of being a comic book. It doesn't shy away from being a comic book, and I really like that. In the Kingdom of Monsters wanted to be like a reality show, whereas this wants to be a comic book. And that is I will, uh, one of my pet peeves is comics that are uh, ashamed of being comics, and this certainly is not that. This is top-notch Godzilla comics. The art is great throughout. The story is intelligent. Uh, it doesn't, you know, there's no leaps of logic, which I absolutely hate. It doesn't club you over the head either. It's, it's you know, just a, a, a strong story. The dialogue's well-written. The script itself is well-written. The story is fun. You know, there's a lot of heavy stuff going on here with the Yakuza and Sato being framed and stuff. But, you know, the concept of, of a police detective who's been wronged kidnapping Mothra's fairies to use Mothra as a weapon, that's a great idea. That's a great story. You know, that that's the kind of thing that... Um, you know, you wish Toho would, would have busted out something like that rather than some of the more staid stuff we got over certain periods. There's lots of action, you know, lots of monsters, lots of human uh, interaction and human uh, drama to go with it. Really, to me, this simply knocks it out of the park. I think IDW should have let off with this miniseries, and then if they wanted to do launch Kingdom of Monsters afterwards, I think that would have been a better move. 
um, at least for this Daikaiju fanboy, I certainly would have a better feeling overall about how IDW is handling the property if they did that. Uh, and so I cannot recommend Gangsters and Goliaths enough. If you want to read this, you can either track down the uh, individual issues at your local comic shop or online, or if you'd prefer, uh, the trade paperback is available on Amazon.com. In fact, if you go to uh, the Two True Freaks Podcast Network homepage, which is at twotruefreaks.libson.com, and click on their Amazon.com link, you can go through and buy the book, and a little bit of the money will be kicked back to uh, keeping the lights on here at Two True Freaks. I heartily recommend it. If you uh, are a Godzilla fan, well, if you're listening to this show, you're probably a Godzilla fan. You owe it to yourself to pick this up and give it a read. You will not be disappointed with Gangsters and Goliaths. We're going to take a quick commercial break. I'm going to you know, put in a promo for another fine podcast you should be listening to. And then we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And Guy Gardner is a douche. Especially Guy Gardner, who was being a bit of a douchebag, but uh, he wasn't really listening. That's Guy's like that. thing. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's his other superpower. <laughs> Speaking of Guy Gardner, page 19, I resent the brain damage comment. He was just a character I found extremely grating. Wow, the internet seems to be filled with people who really can't stand the character of Guy Gardner. I mean, to some extent they have a point. I mean, they'd read the character like I have, his adventures of the cores, his solo comic run, whatever. Maybe they'd have a little more appreciation for him. I mean, there needs to be more guy love on the internet. Um, maybe not that kind of guy love. Regardless, there still has to be a way that a middle-aged man like myself with a love of comic books should be able to present a defense for an underrated character. If he built it, they will come. What was that? If he built it, they will come. Okay, strange disembodied voice. That's a great idea, but I really don't see how building a baseball field and a little bit cornfield will help matters. I mean, I think there aren't any cornfields near here, especially once they're the owner let me build a baseball field in. Plus, Guy was more of a football player and... No, no, no. <sighs> Look, no speaking metaphorically. What I meant by Bill is... Oh, maybe make a podcast about it? Well, that's an even better idea. And it's a lot easier, given my farming and athletic abilities. I could recount all the appearances in Kai in comics, I could focus on a solo run, I could get detailed plans of Ms. Barr, and... Hold on, hold on, hold on, champ, champ. You really want people to actually listen to the podcast, don't you? Well, yeah. So why not start with the 1990s Green Lantern and continue on to the Reaper? That's an even better idea. I could cover the Guy Gardner solo series along the way, and also put up for a defense my second favorite GL, Kyle Rayner. Plus, really, these are the two Earth-based Green Lanterns. For whatever reason, they're really overlooked in the mass media. Plus, I've got a nearly complete runs of both series. Wow! Thanks, strange disembodied voice. No problem. Now, now, now. let's go let's through go President, President Nixon. Um... You do know that Nixon has been dead for well over a decade. Oh, 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 oh. Well, how about some brownies? Mmm, that sounds great. I love some good brownies, especially the one with the chocolate frosting on top. Or have you ever had blondies? Those are even better. I had one of those Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, is a weekly internet radio show covering the Green Lantern comics, starting with Green Lantern number 1 in 1990 and ending with Green Lantern number 181 in 2004. 
During the run, I will be placing special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my two favorite and the most underappreciated members of the Green Lantern Corps. Along the way, I'll be covering the Guy Gardner comic run, some Green Lantern annuals, and whatever else takes my interest at the time. Come and listen along with me, Sean Ingle, as I make the case for the Green Lanterns who deserve a better reputation at justoneoftheguys.lipson.com. Okay, we're back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Um, everybody's always asking me, Luke, what are you going to do on the next episode? Well, to be honest, nobody ever asked me that, but this is the time where I tell you what we're going to do on the next episode. In the next episode, we are going to be talking about one of my favorite Godzilla video games of all time, which is Godzilla Monster of Monsters for the Nintendo Entertainment System. And this is going old school for some of my younger listeners out there. I know I've got uh, a couple of listeners who are too young to remember the NES. And so this will be a little bit of an eye-opener for you guys. I got a, I have a lot of fond memories of this game, so it's going to be uh, fun for me to, to play through it a little bit and uh, do a podcast about it. I'm also going to be featuring a special commentary, comment section, easy for me to say, on Godzilla Legends number one, also from IDW uh, Comics, like our mini, our, yeah, our mini series was today. Uh, this is another set of comics that IDW is releasing. Each one is a spotlight. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to talk about them as a whole series. So what I'm going to do instead is just throw them in as special comments in, uh, in the episodes, and that way you get a little bonus content. Uh, the first issue of Godzilla Legends deals with Angurus, the fan-favorite quadrupedal uh, monster of spiky back fame from the Godzilla series. And uh, it's pretty good, and so I hope you'll enjoy that as well. Uh, I don't have any emails or blog posts uh, to read today. I please, please, please encourage you to send in your feedback to the show. Every podcaster loves getting emails and blog posts and just feedback in general because it tells us that we're doing something right and that you guys enjoy what we're doing and that you're interested in what we're doing. And like I said, if you send me feedback, I'll get back in touch with you and I'll read it on the show. And I've got a new outro for the show, which I'll be introducing on this episode. I've got all the contact information in that outro. So I am going to sign off at this point. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. And from me to you, till next time, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directed, a Daikaiju podcast, hosted and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, and presented by the Two True Freaks Podcast Network, available at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. All characters, stories, images, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This is a fan work designed to honor the rich history of Japanese giant monster movies and culture. The opinions expressed on Earth Destruction Directive are my own, and I receive no money for this work. You can send feedback to our email address, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. All feedback is welcome, and if you send it an email, I will respond to you on the show. Alternately, you can leave a comment at the home of Earth Destruction Directive on the Internet, 
earthdestructiondirective.blogspot.com. You can also check out the Two True Freaks Forum at www.forumforgeeks.com. And you can find me on Twitter with the handle LJACONE. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And be sure to head to twotruefreaks.libson.com to check out all the other fine quality Two True Freaks podcasts available. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.